can't imagine someone more interesting that we could possibly present to you than the incredible Peter Frampton. Peter, thank you so much for doing this. It's a joy to talk to you. It's my pleasure to talk to you. So, Peter, as we talked briefly before we got on the air, there's so much ground to cover, and I just finished reading your incredible memoir, Do You Feel Like I Do?, which is a, a phenomenal read. Thank you. And I thought we would start by going back to Beckenham, Kent, <laughs> and talk about Owen and Peggy, yes. your mom and dad. And I'd love to start with your mom, Peggy. And there were two things, Peter, from the book that really jumped out. One was the role your mom played working in Churchill's bunker during World War II with the code breakers. And then in a completely different aspect of your mom's life and our influence over you, it was really your mom from the book I learned that was the one who said, at a very young age, let him pursue his passion in music and convinced your dad. So can we start our conversation by talking about your mom? Always. I enjoy talking about my mom. <laughs> Always. Um, I, I was lucky I had uh, a terrific pair of parents. So, um, but it was, um, mom was, um, she was, the reason that she was, um, so adamant to dad <laughs> that I should pursue my uh, my passion for music was that she was denied it by her parents. She got a scholarship to RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. And all she needed from her parents was 50 pounds as the um, entrance fee. And it was a scholarship. So um, she would have been an actress. Um, which she was very good at. <laughs> and um, so I think her her mother just said when she came home all excited and her mother said to her, an actress, that's, that's like a prostitute, isn't it? You know, that's the way they thought of actors and actresses at, at, that, at that time and would have been the 20s, you know. And um, so I think that left a scar on her, obviously. Uh, but then she became a, an incredible secretary and ended up working for, as you said, for the Americans um, underneath Selfridges in, on Oxford Street um, and was in some of the very high-level conversations. She knew when D-Day was going to be before anybody else. But when before she came out of the room, they had to shred or whatever, burn her notes, whatever. So, um, I mean, I, I only found out about that later on in, her, in, in our relationship. And um, so, so then when I show this, um, this, this talent for playing uh, music at such an early age, um, uh, my dad kept on looking at my mom and said, this is getting serious here. What are we going to do? And my mom said, don't worry, don't worry. We'll be okay. We'll be okay. He'll, he'll do his schooling. <laughs> and um, so my, my father's school teacher. So, you know, I <laughs> try and tell a school teacher you want to leave school. Um, <laughs> so, um, so anyway, then um, I, uh, when, it, when it came to the point of me joining the herd which was a professional band 
um, in in South London. Um, I had played with them over the summer as a stand-in, you know, but they asked me, you know, will you drop out of school and join the band? I was 16, you know, so um, six, 16 and a half maybe. And so I said, well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I better speak to mom and dad. So that's when I went back and, uh, I mean, dad gave me razor eyes, you know, like this, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, and mom was sort of, looking at dad and, and looking at me and going, leave it with me. So um, then I'm sure my mother went back 40 years or whatever it was at that point, 30 years, and said to dad, look, I got de denied my passion. Let's not deny my, our son, you know. So she talked him into it. So I thank I thank my mother and thank you for asking about it. Oh, what a what a wonderful story. So we have so much ground again to cover, but let's go to your dad now. And you mentioned he was a teacher. And as I recall, Peter, that was at the Bromley Technical School. Mm -hmm. And your dad had a unique relationship with a young man by the name of David Jones, yes. who was also a friend of yours. Yes, um, David was in a band um, called the Conrads, and my dad took me to the school that I was eventually to go to a year later, um, Bromley Technical High School, that's correct, and um, um, we went on the weekend, there was a charity event, and uh, I think two things happened that day, I think we got a puppy from the puppy mill people, <laughs> not puppy mill, but puppy, uh, the, the local puppy shop there, and um, also I noticed this great music coming from uh, from the uh, steps of the school, and it was a band called the Comrades, and I'd heard about them because they were a great local band. Um, I instantly was taken by the singer and saxophone player who was standing on the end, and I, I was mesmerized. He had that magic right when he was like, 14 or 15 or whatever he was then. And um, so I said to dad, dad, who's that? And he said, oh, that's Jones. He's very creative. Um, <laughs> so the first lunch I went, so a year goes by, I actually go to see the Conrad's play. I snuck in somewhere locally. And then I went to the school um, for the second year um, and the first lunch hour, I just made a beeline for Dave. And um, he knew who I was because of dad, you know. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was an instant friendship. And I have to, I always mention George Underwood, who is a, fine, a fantastic fine artist. He did the Ziggy Stardust cover too, as well as many other things for David. But George, Dave, and myself were the three amigos, you know. And my dad let us bring our guitars to school and he would put them in his office in the morning and we'd get them out at lunchtime and we'd jam, you know. So, so, so known, him ever, known him ever since. We've been friends ever since. So long before David Jones became David Bowie and became a lifelong friend of, of you and your family, um, you, George, and I'm glad you mentioned George, uh, you would leave your guitars in your dad's office and you would play Buddy Holly tunes and other great, great, 
artists who were tremendously influential and in many ways embraced more so in the UK than they were back in the US. Very interesting how a lot of that dynamic worked. Talk about Buddy Holly and some of those early influences, Peter. That was got to be a very memorable time and really set you on your path musically. Yes, it was the, uh, the three main acts that I was really enjoyed was Buddy Holly, uh, Eddie Cochran, both because both of those because they played really good guitar, you know, and I was into electric guitar. I only had an acoustic, so I wanted an electric. And it, so we we did see Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly on TV in England, um, and also the Everly Brothers for their vocals and the production of their records. And later finding out when I met Chet Atkins, I said that was you on Till I Kissed You, right? Playing playing the uh, the chords with the tremolo on it. And he said, yeah, I think that was me. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. And so I actually got to meet Chad Atkins and talk about the very first record I brought into the house. Where against, I had to sneak it in, my dad didn't like it. So he, <laughs> but but then George gave me the the first Buddy Holly Coral Records album. Um, went round to his house, and I, I. Next time I come to England, I have to give it back to him. I still have it. Oh my gosh, what a great story! So, age fourteen, Peter, two people enter your life: Bill Wyman and Glenn Johns, and in a short period of time, you find yourself on television on Ready Steady Go. You're fourteen years old. It was an amazing thing when. I was in this band, The Preachers, and The Preachers had a drummer called Tony Chapman, who was the preceding drummer of Charlie. He, in fact, um, introduced Bill to the Stones, um, as they didn't have a bass player when Tony was in the band. So anyway, um, Bill said, when, when Tony, unfortunately, was... Um, not in the band anymore, <laughs> um, and Charlie was, he said, Tony, I, I'm totally indebted to you for, for introducing me to the Stones, and when you, when you get a band together, I'll produce it and manage it for you. So that's how I'm now in The Preachers, but I'm still at school, um, only playing on Saturday and, and Sunday nights, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And um, so... Bill is doesn't know I'm in the band at that point. And then we go up to the studio for the very first session. And um, that's when Bill and I just hit it off and, and Glenn and I as well, you know. So it was then the next thing I know, we're on TV and the Rolling Stones are on and I'm help, helping Ian Stewart change Keith Richards' strings before the show. Um, after that, I just sat on the sidelines and watched... The Stones do Satisfaction Live for the first time. Incredible story. So you mentioned the word jazzy, which leads me exactly to where I wanted to go next. Your uh, guitar play and style of play is completely unique. Most great guitar players in rock, British and otherwise, draw more upon the blues. Your influences are there, but also jazz, Django Reinhardt and Kenny Burrell. That's unique to you. I'd love to hear about that and 
jazz and how it all came together for you musically playing guitar in your completely unique and powerful way. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, no, I, I think that um, I was <clears throat> listening to everybody and their mate play guitar, you know, whatever I could get, you know, I was listening to it. So it was, it was, of course, uh, the shadows were a big influence on me, Hank Marvin, and was the reason I started playing, who's a dear, dear friend now. And uh, we've actually played, I played with the shadows in the studio for one of my albums. And um, so uh, there was that, and then there was blues, and then there was R&B, there was Motown, which is R&B, um, and there was jazz. And I grew up in a household where my parents listened to, I would put Buddy Holly on, Eddie Cochran on, and they'd put Django Reinhardt's Stefan Grappelli on. And I couldn't get out of the room quick enough. You know, it was not my kind of music. And then gradually, every weekend, we do, I'd, okay, now I'll do the Beatles. And then he does Django. And I, oh, I can't, what is that? And so finally, um, I was halfway up the stairs one day, and I heard Django do this from the low E to the highest fret on the on the point two of a second and it was incredible run and i just came back down the stairs and i opened the door i said dad this guy's really good he said well i was wondering when you'd realize you know so anyway that's that's how i started listening to jazz i listened to django at least a couple of tracks every day my entire life i i do that and miles davis and people like that but i also listened to muddy waters and you know, and what Muddy was, how Muddy was played by English bands, and you know, then there was, you know, Buddy Guy and BB King, who I had the honor to have on my tour, and uh, so yeah, it was a mishmash of of styles. And I think what happens is that when when you are formulate, ho hopefully you will one day formulate a, your own unique style, which is what I wanted to do. And so you start by playing like everybody else. But the thing is, you never sound like that person because you aren't that person. You don't have the same fingers. You don't have the same technique of playing. So once you play someone solo, it's sort of almost half yours already. And then if you put them all together, um, you've got so much, you know, to pull from in your, in your library up here. And then one day, I'll tell you when it was. It was with Humble Pie. We were doing the Rock On album and uh, with Glenn Johns. Um, and I love working with Glenn. And uh, so we were doing a track called Stone Cold Fever, the studio version, not the live version. And uh, I came in, I'd done a solo on that. And I came in and Glenn played it back and obviously you think it sounds good in the headphones but you come in and you listen to what Glenn's done to it in there and it was like oh my god it's so great and um how do you do that <laughs> and uh so he got to the guitar solo and I didn't say anything but inside I was going wow I think I'm me now I think I've actually reached a point where I don't think many people play like that in a rock song, you know, and 
it was a, a very special moment for me. And then I just built on that, you know, and listened to much more blues and much more jazz and much more R&B and, and classical and you name it. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't even listen to necessarily to guitar players, saxophone players. Trump, I love Miles's choice of notes, you know. I mean, it doesn't get much better. Jerry Mulligan, you know, there's just, uh, um, and um, yeah, so everything. I, I, I listen to uh, uh, to blues, jazz, and punk, whatever it is. Um, and, I, and I love it all because I love music. And I just, I will hear a little phrase somewhere and it'll just go, you know, like we all do. Every guitarist does that. So you mentioned Humble Pie. We can't have this conversation and not talk about Steve Marriott. No, we can't because he was one of the biggest influences on me ever um, and still is. Uh, taught me stage presence, taught me how to handle an audience, and he told me that I will never be able to sing like him. <laughs> he is, I mean, his voice is, is the ultimate rock voice up there with Paul Rogers and, and obviously um, Robert Plant and uh, so many other great, great um, rock singers. The thing is that Steve was a concoction. Um, uh, he would listen to... Um, the Staples, you know, the Staples uh, uh, family, and and uh, and he'd be doing, we'd be doing an, a Muddy Waters song, and he'd go into this kind of gospel thing, you know, in the middle, you know, which taught me also that what I was doing with my guitar, Steve was doing. That's why he was so unique. He loved country, he loved uh, gospel, he loved blues, rock, he loved it all. Um, if it was a good singer, um, like Mavis, <laughs> I mean, Humble Pie, after I left, the foot, one of the first tracks they'd covered was um, uh, Oh La Di Da, which is Mavis singing, obviously saying, singing most of the lead there. And when I heard Humble Pie's version, I said, Steve's channeling Mavis. And whenever I would go over to his place, and he would be playing some music, there would be at least one Staples track that he would play, and he, he would just stop talking and sing along with it, you know. Um, but he was a, a, an enormous talent, very unique, um, had his demons. We all do. I've had mine. Um, but unfortunately, he never quite came to terms with his, and, and that's the sad part of the story. Yeah, fantastic. So you've been in three great groups. You were in the Preachers, Heard, Humble Pie, and, and the great Steve Marriott. Somewhere inside of you, there's an artist who wants to do his own thing, who wants to be a solo artist. And that starts to happen, and it takes a while. Let's talk about 76. Let's talk about Frampton Comes Alive, which today still all these years later is as powerful and resonant and relevant and entertaining. And I remember it, Peter, when I was a kid, and that was one that you'd always want to play it loud. Let's talk about 1976. It came out in early January and we'd recorded it throughout 
75. And um, um, I went, I knew that we were going to be touring the whole year uh, on and off, you know, uh, to promote a new live record. And so I decided I would go in early January with my girlfriend, Penny, at the time, and, um, and go down to the Bahamas or wherever it was we went, down one of the islands, I think maybe uh, St. Thomas, something like that, and uh, for 10 days, get some rest, and then, because we just finished mixing the live record, and uh, so I came, before I went, uh, my agent told me we have one show booked in Cobo Hall, you headlining. I said, what? You, that's a huge place, I said. I know, I, they said, uh, Frank Barcelona said, I know, but it's, you can fill it. I said, you're kidding me. So anyway, I went away from my vacation going, wow, things are really changing, you know. So I came back 10 days later and Frank said, you remember I told you you had one sold out? He said, you have four sold out now. I said, you're kidding me. I said, what's going on? He said, this record is going to go through the roof. Watch it. And he was right, you know. And from that moment on, uh, all hell broke loose. <laughs> and my life has never been the same since. So jumping ahead, more than 30 years after Frampton Comes Alive comes out, and you're always working. You're working here, as you've talked about, you know, on the road, so many projects, always touring, always working, always creating records. In 2007, you have a breakthrough and win a Grammy with fingerprints. That must have made you feel incredibly well, Peter. That must have been a real moment for you all those years after Frampton Comes Alive. Well, I think because the image that was portrayed by myself, but overly portrayed by the media, which we didn't control, and by management, um, you know, and the clothes that I, I was good, a good looking guy back then, you know, and un, unfortunately, you know, um, I was overly attracted to the girls, I guess. Um, and the guitar kind of got forgotten along the way and the face and the way I looked became more important to a lot of people. So I lost my male audience because they didn't like that. And as far as I was concerned, I'd gone back to this sort of pop sort of uh, image that I had in the herd, which is why I left and joined, formed Humble Pie, you know, because I didn't like that. But um, I, I'm, I'm responsible, I guess, uh, uh, as well as anybody else. But it was so huge that it was very hard to control. But when I when I got nominated twice that year for fingerprints, once for the track Black Hole Sun, the uh, Soundgarden cover, and uh, once for the whole record for instrumental record of the year, pop record of the year, um, I, I said, well, we'll go, but you know, I think Larry Carlton was in the, you know, I, I was up against some stiff competition, <laughs> put it that way. And when they called my name out for, not for the track, but for the whole album, um, my wife and I just screamed, I think. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I just, and so I went up and I, 
Unfortunately, my dad had passed during the making of it. He'd heard most of it, but he didn't hear the final thing. Um, I, I made my speech a tribute to my father, and I remember I never wear a tie. I hate wearing ties, but my dad did, or a cravat. Um, so I wore a tie, and at the end of my speech, that's when I, I looked up and I said, Dad, I wore the tie for you. <laughs> and it was just a special, special moment. And then I came off stage kind of like a deer in headlights. I was like, it was this accept, feeling of acceptance from my peers, and uh, which I thought was lost many years ago. And, um, and Larry Carton comes running across the, the lobby there with his wife and gives me the biggest hug and says, man, you so deserve this. And that was almost as good, if not better, than the Grammy, I have to say. Larry Carlton is the guitarist, guitarist. He's my, one of my all-time favorites. And, um, oh, my goodness. So then, you know, um, we got him to play on, on, the, on the blues record, which came out before this new um, instrumental covers record. So... So I had him, I, I finally got to play in the studio with Larry as well. So it, that album really changed everything for me, uh, the Fingerprints record, the Grammy. And one funny thing, I got, you, you don't actually, you give the Grammy, they, they give you a show Grammy for pictures, then they take it away and they engrave your name on it. Well, my writing partner, and co-producer um, Gordon Kennedy, uh, he said, I said, come over. It arrived. Come over and see it. And I hadn't really studied. I just saw my name and, you know, um, uh, instrumental record of the year, you know, all that. And I just ah, that's great. And uh, so he said, I said, yeah, come on over. Because he already had one for writing Change the World for as as a, three people. He was one of the main people to write the song Change the World for Eric. So he got record of the year, you know, Grammy. And I said, I got one now. I'm, I'm equal with you. And so he comes over and he picks it up. He says, oh, no. I said, what? They've misspelled something on here. I said, you yeah, I thought he was joking. You know, well, it's the Academy of the Arts and Sciences, right? Well, my one says A.D., not AC, the Academy of Arts and Sciences. So he said, I better get that back to, I know the man that makes them, I'll get it. But I said, are you kidding me? I'm not giving this one back. It's worth a billion dollars. It's the only one like it. <laughs> Unless they want to give me two. <laughs> Fantastic. What a great story. Well, Peter, thanks so much. It was one of the great joys uh, before the lockdown that we got to see your last show at the garden in the fall of 19. And it was a magic night. And we'd seen you open for Steve Miller a couple of years before oh, that. Yeah. Steve what, a what a joy to talk to you. Yeah. Well, another another great guitar player. Oh, wonderful. Well, uh, have a great day and um, hope to see you again soon. And more stories like this. The book was just incredible. Really wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Cheers.